good to see you all this morning here together to worship the Lord through uh, singing of His um, praises, uh, worshiping Him through the study of His Word, and um, prayerfully worshiping Him through our response to His Word, how we respond to it. Obviously, the way that we respond to His Word is one of the most significant ways in which we can worship the Lord. Just knowing the information that's in it is, is helpful, but our attitudes towards it and our actions that follow it are all that much more significant. In this Christmas season, we are thankful to be able to worship Him, and even if it be in the alley beside the church building or via online through virtual we are thankful to be able to worship our Lord. We live in a country where there is still a freedom that we have, and we want to enjoy that freedom and embrace it as much as we can. A few thoughts before I get into the message this morning. Um, this week is the Christmas week. Friday is Christmas Day. Thursday night we will have a Christmas Eve service here. It'll be here in the alley. Uh, we'll have it all set up. It'll be quaint and Christmassy. We want to invite you to come. It'll be from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We're going to have some music. We'll have a little uh, me short message and uh, just a gospel message surrounding the Christmas season. And then we'll um, go home to be with our families for Christmas Day. So I want to invite you to come and be with us on, on Christmas Eve. Again, that will be from 7 to 8 this week. It will be here in the alley. Also, when you're leaving this morning, there is a, a table in the sanctuary. You went by it when you came through. On that table is a small little booklet. Um, I believe it's called The Greatest Promise of God or something to that effect. Um, please feel free to take one of those home with you. That uh, A few ladies actually in the church purchased a um, hundred of those so that they wanted, they read them and felt like they were that good that they wanted to share them with you. And so they purchased those for you. As, as a gift. So please take one of those on your way out. As well, we have the Christmas to Congo um, uh, fundraiser, if you will, our Christmas giving uh, promotion. We're trying to encourage everybody to, to give towards this ministry. And you've probably gotten several emails on it, but there's actually a pamphlet inside the building here. We really want, you know, Christmas... One of the things that the Lord has worked on my heart about this year, and, and even last year a little bit, but, but more so this year, is just the we give often to those who can give in return. Uh, most of the gifts that we give on Christmas morning are to people who have given us gifts or will give us gifts. And I think the scriptures make a clear plea to give to those who can't give anything in return. And I think that's the, the greatest gift is not to give it to somebody that's going to repay it, but the greatest gift is when you're able to give to somebody who can't repay it. And that's why we're called to give to the poor and to the needy, and we're called to give to those who don't have anything. And they can't repay us, but there is a, there is a heavenly Father. We have a heavenly Father who will repay all of that, won't he? That's what Matthew teaches us, that if we do things in secret or we do things to people that can't reward us, that there's, a, there's an eternal reward for that. And so the, the uh, Christmas to Congo is a great opportunity for you as a church to give to something that will not repay you in this life, and yet it will, it will bear extraordinary rewards in heaven. It is, it is Matthew 6, laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, is what this Christmas to Congo is. And so please take one of those and, and give to that ministry. I, I was sharing with Michael recently, um, there's probably very few missions ministries 
that I that I can say with all honesty and with all uh, integrity and full knowledge that every dime that goes to that ministry is going to go to missions work. And I know I know uh, Pastor Paul and his ministry, and, and I, one of the humblest men, and some of you have met him, one of the gr- most gracious men, and um, you can know if you give to that ministry, it's going to go towards the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just want to encourage you with that during this season. As much as we want to give to each other, let's, um, let's, let's go one step further this year and and, and reach into this community, this ministry, and, uh, and give freely to them, and, and let's bless them this year if we can. I want to share with you this morning from Ruth chapter number two. This morning is kind of a weird morning. I don't know where the Holy Spirit is going to go. It's the weirdest thing. I went to turn, I have a, a little a pad that has all my notes on it and everything like that, and, and I, I sync them together, and I, and I turn it on right before I get up to preach so it doesn't run out of battery. And I turned it on, and nothing was synced, so I have no notes. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't, you know, when those things happen, I don't, um, sometimes I don't preach with notes on purpose. Other times I don't preach with notes on accident. And this is one of those mornings, and I, and I, and I don't, um, I guess I'm sharing this with you because I don't feel like these things are accidental. I don't know what, where the Holy Spirit's wanting to go. And maybe he's wanting to share something with you that wasn't, wasn't in my notes or wasn't in my notes. So I just pray that you'll bear with me this morning as I wrestle through this text with you. I think the text will speak um, for itself, as it, as it always ought to anyway. Um, but I might have fewer cross-references and things like that that I had filled into my notes, so forgive me for that, but uh, hopefully God will be able to bless you this morning through the preaching of his word. A couple of things to remember. The book of Ruth begins in chapter number, obviously chapter number one, which is the entire chapter, is a, uh, is a description, if you will, of Ruth and Naomi and their, and their journey to this place of redemption, to Bethlehem, where they will meet a man who will uh, ultimately bring redemption to them, bring deliverance to them, bring salvation to them. Chapter number one describes their journey to get to that place. It is absolutely, it is absolutely of necessity that you, that you understand chapter number one before you ever get to chapter number two. Remember this, Boaz is never introduced until Ruth and Naomi have come to a full appreciation of Ruth's lostness and Naomi's bitterness. You can't have, you can't have a redeemer until you realize that you're a sinner. You can't have redemption until you acknowledge that you need a redeemer. You need someone to save you. This is a beautiful story. If you read through the book of Ruth, you will find this to be a beautiful story of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. But more than that, it's a story of the marriage of humility and grace. It's a beautiful story of humility. Ruth, throughout the entire book, this book is called Ruth, but you know what the, what the story is n- not a lot about? It's not a lot about Ruth. This is, she, she defines herself, presents herself in such an extraordinarily selfless way that it's not about her at all. And then you have Boaz, who is this great redeemer, and he sees everything through these extraordinary eyes of grace. I just think that sometimes we, 
we miss a lot of what God, the gracious Lord, has for us because we miss the humility that is needed for that grace to be connected. We miss the the emptiness. We miss out on the selflessness that's necessary so that grace can be married to it and, and we can benefit from it. So, so Ruth, the whole first chapter is about two women who are lost, who are weary, who are empty, who are recognizing all of those things, bitter, frustrated. Um, there's no question as to the, the, the physical, emotional, and spiritual condition of these two women in this moment. And unless we come to that place, we'll never get to... A lot of us as, as uh, human beings are living in chapter number one because we haven't come yet to say to us, uh, don't, call me, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara because I am bitter. Right? It might not be bitterness. You might not be one that struggles with bitterness, which would be a rarity if you weren't. But most of us st- struggle with bitterness of some kind. But you might be someone who has to acknowledge that you're, you're lustful, you're prideful, you're full of yourself. Listen, we never get to Boaz, we never get to redemption until we acknowledge that we are needy people. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sinfulness, then he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James tells us, and 1 Peter also tells us, that God resists the proud, or he is the enemy of the proud, but he gives grace to the, he gives grace to the humble. It's a, it's, a, it's a partnership, it's a marriage. If you're a prideful person, you are the enemy of God. No matter how much Bible you know, no matter how much theology you know, no matter how intellectual you are, if you are full of yourself, even in those religious things like the Pharisees were, you are in opposition to God. The grace of God is poured out on those who have seen themselves as being empty, broken, having nothing without Christ. And that's the ones that he pours out his blessings on. So it's important that we recognize who we are, where we're at before we have met Christ and recognize his significance or his importance when we meet him. Chapter number two is written to just introduce us to Boaz. If we were to, um, I mean, that would be the definition of it, meet Boaz. And you could, you can, we can, we can understand this. But Boaz, as a picture of Christ, is also we're meeting Christ in this story. We're, we're meeting uh, Boaz, who's going to redeem Ruth and Naomi, which is going to lead to David, who's going to, re, who's going to redeem the Jews, who leads to Christ, who is going to redeem the world. So we're meant to see in Boaz certain characteristics or certain principles that are driving us to appreciating Christ, driving us to understanding who Christ is, to understanding the, 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 the um, character of Christ. In Boaz, we should see the character of Christ. We should pursue being like Boaz, but we should ultimately we're pursuing being like Christ. So let's walk through together. We're just going to read chapter number two. I'm going to stop and make a few comments And then 
as the Lord wills of what I can remember, I'm going to give you some things that are characteristics of Christ that are also characteristics displayed by Boaz. And the purpose of this this morning is to draw you in. That's what it is. This, is, this second chapter is drawing Ruth and Naomi into Boaz's world. That's what they're doing. It's, it's almost like a, um, it's like a guy... If you've ever, you guys have all dated and you've been engaged, if you're married, you've been engaged, and you've gone through that whole process of luring your wife in, right? You buy them flowers, you buy them chocolates, you take them out to dinner. You do all of these really kind things for them because you're, you're bringing them to yourself, right? And the scripture talks about that in, in John, also in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, and in many other passages of scripture as well. There's this drawing that the Holy Spirit does to us. And John 6, verse 44 actually says, No one will come to Christ unless the Father draws them or brings them. And then if you go back into Hosea, Hosea says, speaks of, of Hosea and, and Gomer, which is a picture of Christ. Christ and his church, redemption as well. He says that, that he lured her. He lured her in. He drew her in. So we're going to see in chapter number two, we're going to see the introduction of Boaz drawing in Ruth and Naomi into his, into his world, if you will. And we'll see some things, some characteristics of Christ in it. So join me, if you would, in reading this chapter. The Bible says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And just stop there for a moment. Um, again, we talked about this last week. This is introducing Boaz before he's actually on the scene. Immediately after Ruth and Naomi make this long journey, uh, they both acknowledged Ruth is a Moabite, Naomi is a bitter woman. They both acknowledged their sinfulness, their sinful state, their lost condition. And so the Lord is introducing them to Boaz before they're actually going to meet Boaz. We get to see him in that moment. Again, as I mentioned last week, it's, it's, it's as if you're at the end of yourself and the Lord's return isn't until the future or the Lord's coming isn't until the future. And the Lord just says, I want to remind you, I want you to know of this person who is going to come and bring redemption to you. And we see that in the Old Testament prophets with, with Christ being foretold to the Hebrew people that although he's not here, I want you to know about him, he's coming. And we get to experience that from a rapture perspective that although Christ is not here uh, to take us home yet, but there, is, there is coming a day that he will come back and take his people home. He says that he's a worthy man. And this simply implies a few things. Number one, is that he is a powerful man. He is a capable man. A cap capability would be very significant with this term. He's a capable, he's capable of redeeming. He's capable of bringing salvation or deliverance to these women. He's worthy because of where he, of his clan. He's of the clan of Elimelech, which means that because of his family connections, his family ties, he is able to, he is capable of bringing redemption. So when you see this word worthy here, speaking of Boaz, it's referring to his, his ability, it's referring to his, his family relationships or his, his heritage, if you will, that he is able, he is capable of bringing redemption to um, to Ruth and to Naomi. It's so important to get that because if we mention Boaz and we find out somewhere in the future that Boaz isn't a capable redeemer, it doesn't bring much hope, does it? Matter of fact, it becomes a story of discouragement instead of a story of encouragement. 
And we want the story of encouragement. He says, um, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of corn after him, in whose sight I have found favor. And so Ruth, Ruth decides, I need to go out and get a job. I need to go out and do something to provide for the needs of me and and Naomi, the same as Naomi did in chapter number one. And so she says to Naomi in a respectful way, because that's the way the culture works, she said, I, I'd, I'd like to go out and to glean in the fields to provide our needs. Naomi gives her privilege to do that. She says this, it's interesting, because Naomi, Ruth says, let me go out and find, let me go out and glean in the fields of whose sight I will find favor. And this word favor is significant in this passage of Scripture because it, 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 this word is the, the same term in the Hebrew that we get grace from. In other words, this is a gracious act. She, Ruth understands that if I'm going to be able to supply our needs, it's going to be the result of someone's favor on me. Someone's going to show me grace. One of these farmers is going to show me grace or favor, and in that is where I'm going to be able to provide our needs. The Bible goes on to say, and she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Again, you'll notice a few things. Number one, he's of the clan of Elimelech. Why does he keep repeating this? It's because this is what makes him worthy. This is what the, the issue is redemption here, and what, what makes him worthy is that he's of the clan of Elimelech. So let's keep repeating that. And not only that, but Ruth's unworthiness is that she's a Moabite, and they're going to keep on repeating that as well. And then the idea of it happening, they happened that she happened to come on a field. The simple implications of that phrase is, is that this is a providential act that in man's eyes is an incidental act. Okay, can, can I submit to you this morning that most of our lives, if not all of our lives, are providential acts that we see as incidental. Man always looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Man looks at what's going on, the activities, and man, man you know, you, you hear people say, man, good luck to you, right? I, I, hope, you have a, 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 I hope you have luck on that. Well, from a man's perspective, that makes sense to us, right? From God's perspective, there's no such thing as luck. God is a God of providence. God is a God who is sovereignly in control of all things that are taking place. Nothing is happening accidentally. Nothing is happening, happening incidentally. And the reality of it is, is the sooner we come to the knowledge of that, the sooner we will bow our knee to the one who is worthy of our knee. So he's making a statement, and, and really, Ruth is full of these incidental providences. The book is meant for you to almost see God hovering in the background, manipulating or working things out for the end result, while, while Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they just see it as day-to-day -day life. Isn't that how it works, though? How many of you can look back on your journey through life and say, I get why that happened now? It's easy to do, isn't it, when you're looking back? What's difficult is to look forward and to say, I know that God has a purpose and a plan, and he's going to work that out. Looking back, we see the providence of God. Looking forward, it takes faith to see the power of God. 
So he says, he says that she happened on the field of Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, which was not an accident. And we get that again from verse number one, where Boaz is already introduced. The plan is already in place, right? There, in two and verse one, God's not waiting for things to develop, is he? He's like, Boaz is the worthy one. Ruth and Naomi, we'll get you into the story here soon. That's how it works, and that's how we work in life. It's the best thing when we find a way to appreciate and, and, uh, and submit to that. Let's go on. The Bible says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And this is just a common uh, greeting, if you will, during these days. It says something about Boaz, though. Boaz did not see, he, he is speaking to his servants in this case. He is speaking to those who are under his authority. He is speaking to those who are slaves, if you will, for a modern term to be used that fits perfectly with this term here. He is speaking to people who are slaves, but he treats them in what way? How does he treat his slaves? Equals. The Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. This is a greeting that takes place amongst equals. This is a greeting that takes place amongst friends. It also describes for us the spiritual condition of both um, Boaz's men, his servants, and the spiritual condition of the of Bethlehem during that time. They had been blessed of the Lord in a unique way to where that they were. Lord be with you, Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, whose, whose young woman is this? And this would just simply be a statement back in this time. It was talking about ownership. Who did this young woman belong to? It would almost be like asking the question, whose wife is this woman? Or whose daughter is this woman? Or whose servant or whose slave is this woman? That would be the, the gist of this question. In those days, in, the, in, in this historical setting, women were marked by and noted by who they belonged to. They held to the idea that women were created to be helpmeets, and so they were identified by their, by their partner. Listen to me. Please don't, please, don't begin, de, please don't belittle that. That's the gospel. Do you know that I'm identified, thank God, by Christ? My identity is in Christ. If I want my own identity, then I can have my own identity outside of Christ. Please don't belittle the idea of women being identified by who they're connected to in the Bible because that is what points us to Christ. This is a, this is, we live in a selfish culture where everybody wants to have their own identities. And so we look at this text, honestly, we look at this text and we would, most of us would scoff at something like this because I will never be identified by someone else. Yes, you will if you're going to go to heaven. Yes, you will if you're going to be a Christian. Yes, you will if you're going to be a follower of Christ. Please let us not adopt the world's cultural ideas that being identified by somebody else is a bad thing. Thank God that we can be identified by somebody else or in somebody else. Whose woman is this? He says this, listen, 
There's no, there's no note of she's, she's, uh, she's the, she's the, she's the um, wife of, of Malon or Kilion. There's no note of her being a servant of somebody or her being the daughter of somebody. This woman is completely, has completely been, she has been depleted down to, here's what he says about her. This is a, this is a Moabite. That's right. Literally, if we were going to put this in modern terms, Ruth was identified by him saying of her, this is a sinner. This is a sinner. Whoa! She had no one to identify with except for her sinfulness. She had no one to identify with except for her brokenness, her emptiness her ungodliness, her worldliness. That's all she identified with because her identity was built around herself. Oh, my friends, if we could get to that place where we accept that as a reality and embrace the identity of Christ, if we could hold and cling to who He is for us, who He is in us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, I believe it is, it says, He has become for us. And he lists justification and righteousness. He is these things for us. He is, he is an alien righteousness in you by which you are identified. Wh whose is this woman? Let us not belittle that statement. Who are we? Who owns us? Who possesses us? Who is our husband? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is a Moabite. She is a Moabite woman. She's a sinner. It would be almost like in the Bible days calling somebody a Gentile, somebody being called maybe a Samaritan, just literally an outcast, an insignificant person when they identify with themselves. But she's, she's going to become significant soon. The Bible says, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. You'll notice in this text, as well as in other texts, that he, he reiterates this Moabite, Moabite, Moabite thing. If she's a Moabite woman, does he need to say that she came from the country of Moab? He is, he is layering it on that this is an unworthy woman. He's layering it on who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, she says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now except for the short rest. I'll give you, I'm just going to give you two interpretations of this I think that are helpful. One is that she worked all day gleaning and then she just took a short break in the middle. The other application, the other interpretation of this I think is also equally viable is that she stood waiting for Boaz to get back to get permission to glean in her field, his field. It wasn't just a given permission that she could have possibly, this, this, the Hebrew word here for continuing means that she stood all day. It's possible that she stood all day waiting for the approval of Boaz. There's so much in that with the gospel Go on, verse number 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. So he's accepted her. He's allowed her to glean in his fields. 
He says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with what the young men have drawn, which was not common. What you'll find in this text of Scripture is there's one thing in this text that was legal for her to do. In other words, that Boaz was required for her to do, and that was for her to glean in the fields. It was not required for him to let her drink the water that was drawn by the men. It was not required for um, her, him to say not uh, to allow, to tell the men not to touch her. That was not required by law. There's a lot of extras going on here in this text that Boaz is doing for Ruth. Verse number 10, the Bible says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, and you have taken notice of me? You have accepted me. Why have I? Ruth's attitude is, is why have you accepted me? Why have you, why have you delivered me? Why have you given me hope? Why are you doing these things to me? And here's what she says about herself. Because I am a foreigner. I am a Moabite. I am a sinner. Why are you doing these? Man, this is, this is such uh, extraordinary truth in regards to the heart of a humble person is that we don't often understand why. That, listen, the person that comes to God expecting or demanding of him to do things for them doesn't, doesn't get yet who, what they deserve. This woman is like blessed and she's like, why are you blessing me? Why are you blessing me? Why are you pouring out your favor on me? I'm, I'm a Moabite. Have you, have you forgotten yet? I'm a Moabite. That's her attitude. That's where, listen, that's where humility and grace meet. Humility and grace meet with one person seeing all of their wrong and the other person seeing all of the right. We need to be there. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her husband has been fully told, told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward will be given by, my, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now notice this, just real quick. Did she come to take refuge under Boaz's wings? Who did she come to take refuge under? She came to take refuge under God's wings. This is, a, this, is a, this is a type of speech that refers to what God's people did, what God did with his people. He, he gathered them under his wings so that he might care for them and protect them. Boaz understood what was going on. The Lord repay you. And let's go on here. Then he said, I have found favor. Then she said, I have found favor. There's that word favor again. In your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not your servant. And again, referencing back to her Moabite condition. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Again, this is an act. This was, a, this was an event that was not demanded by law. He did not have to invite the, the gleaners into this meal. This was a special invitation to Ruth to come and eat with them. 
So she sat beside the reapers and passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out that which was gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. It's about 28 pounds of barley. This would have supplied their needs for a, a good season of time. The Bible says, And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, and just, just I'm going fast here, but don't miss. Um, she had left over. She was satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Blessed be the man who accepted you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name of whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Speaking of God's kindness. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this, with his young women, let, let, lest in another field you be assaulted. So when she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So obviously the gleaning, they get there, it's barley harvest, the gleaning, uh, Boaz invites her just to kind of glean unconditionally in the field. He tells his young men, leave extra. He tells them, don't glean, you know, you used to glean not only, you used to leave the end of the field, now leave half of the field for, for Ruth to come behind and, and, and partake. I mean, this is, this is some special favors that she, he's doing towards Ruth. And Boaz is a picture of our Redeemer. He's a picture of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who came into the world. We, Jared read this morning in Luke 2, the Bible says that, um, that she would bear a son and he would save his people. His name would be called Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. We are, we are, we are, um, we are children of God because of his grace what he has done for us. We're meant to be drawn in. Through a story like this, we're meant to be drawn in to appreciate Boaz, to see a man of character, right? To see a man of compassion, to see a lot about this man Boaz. But, but more than that, we're meant to be drawn into Christ. We're meant to see Christ as being this redeemer of unworthy people, undeserving people, unmerited favor. We're meant to be drawn into him. So let me give you just a few, few things. I had six written down in my notes, so we'll see if I get all six of them remembered this morning. Let me give you a few things about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in regards to him being our redeemer. Number one, he is a worthy redeemer. Jesus Christ is a worthy redeemer. I invite you to skip back with me to the book of Revelation Chapter number five, Jesus Christ is a worthy redeemer several, for several reasons. Number one, he is a worthy redeemer because he paid the price for our sins. And Jesus Christ came and lived amongst us and he paid for our sins. He died the ultimate death. He was buried and he, three days later he rose again from the grave. He paid fully for and satisfied the wrath of God towards our sins. He, in his own blood, purchased a people for himself, which makes him worthy to redeem those people. 
It makes, him, it makes him capable, if you will, of redeeming those people. Jesus Christ is capable of redeeming his people. He has the authority to redeem his people. He has paid the price to fully redeem his people. And now he is, he is bringing his people to himself. You're familiar in, Re, in, in Revelation 5. This is the celebration in heaven that takes place just after the church has been raptured. And they're up in heaven and they're, and they're singing these praises to God, to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in verse number 9, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and behold and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that are in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the, and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. For there to be said of a man by the name of Boaz that he was a worthy man, you must take this word and magnify it a thousandfold, and you will still not begin to touch the hem of the garments of the one who is truly worthy. He is a worthy man to redeem Ruth and Boaz because he had financial ability, because he was in the right family. Jesus Christ is not only in the right family, he is God in the flesh. He is capable of redeeming, not only by his death, shedding his blood for us, but he is capable of saving you because he rose again the third day. He defeated all of the enemies of good, all of the enemies of righteousness, all of the enemies of God. Jesus Christ defeated them. He defeated them with one act, the act of his death, and, and culminating in his resurrection. Jesus Christ is a worthy Redeemer. He is capable of saving you. You may be sitting here with us this morning and you may think, you know, I would love to be redeemed. I would love to be set free. I would love to be saved. I would, I would love to be delivered from all of the things of this life. I would love that. But is there someone who is able to do that? Did you guys know that in Revelation 5 that we just read, John faces that same dilemma and he can't find, they, they look all throughout heaven and earth and everywhere and John the apostle begins to weep like a baby. And he says, there's no one. And then the Bible tells us that an elder leans over to John and says, no, John, there is someone. And now comes the Lamb of God as if he had been slain to take away the sins of the world. Listen to me, folks. We have a, a worthy Redeemer. He is capable. He is powerful. He is authoritative to bring salvation to whomever he wills. Jesus Christ is capable. He is a worthy Redeemer. Continue with me as we go on through the text. I'm just going to read it. I'm, 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 I'm really 
I'm, I'm drawing a blank on my second thought. The Bible says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let us go, go in the field and glean among the ears of the grain at, after him, in whose sight I have found favor. There it is. He's a gracious redeemer. Three times in this text we see this idea of graciousness. This term is used to describe the graciousness of Boaz. He is extremely gracious. You think about some of the things that he does that are gracious. Number one, and, and there's a lot of them, and I won't cover them all, but number one is he, he puts himself on the same level with his servants, doesn't he? The Bible says that Jesus Christ came into this world. He was God in human form. He came down to where we are. He walked amongst sinners. The Bible says he ate and drank with prostitutes and drunkards. He walked amongst us. Listen, there is no salvation. There is no redemption. There is no deliverance without Jesus Christ walking where you walked. Jesus Christ experiencing what you experienced. He is a, he is a great high priest because he knows what you go through. According to Hebrews 2 and 4, he knows what you've been through. He knows what you're going through. And he's able to be a gracious high priest for those reasons. Jesus Christ was gracious to his servants. I tell you, a mark of a true believer is one who is gracious towards his servants. We live in a culture today where we want to demand and we want to require and we want to be elevated and exalted and we want to be high and lifted up and there's only one who is worthy of those things. A true follower of Christ is one who is humble towards those who work for him. He was a humble deliverer. The Bible goes on to say and he treats, uh, he treats his servants well. It's interesting as well, throughout this, throughout this book, ten times Naomi is, or Ruth is called a Moabite. Never, except for one time in the fourth chapter, when, when Boaz is trying to convince the other redeemer not to redeem Ruth, he calls her a Moabite, right? Isn't that interesting? He's like trying to say, if you, if you buy this, you've got to take this Moabite woman. But no other, no other context in the entire book, ten times it's used, eight times in the second chapter, at no point does he call Ruth a Moabite. He never refers to her as a Moabite. Matter of fact, if you read through this chapter, you will find that everything that Boaz sees about Ruth is positive. Everything. If you read it, okay, <laughs> read it. We read together. You saw it. Everything that Ruth saw about herself, everything that Ruth saw about herself, negative. Unworthy, undeserving, unearned, unmerited. Everything that Boaz saw about Ruth, positive. Everything. Listen, this is where grace and humility come together. Grace doesn't recognize your failures. Grace doesn't see when you make mistakes. Grace doesn't see when you fall on your face. Grace doesn't see when you sin. Grace doesn't see any of those things. What grace sees is when you succeed. Grace is waiting to reward you for all that you've done for Christ. The law is what's holding you accountable for when you fail. The law is what wants to beat you down when you do wrong. 
Grace is what it lifts you up and says, no, 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 Ruth, listen. Look at all that you've done for your husband and your, and your, and your father-in-law and your mother-in-law. No, Ruth, remember that you've done. I mean, he is, just, he is just encouraging Ruth, isn't he? Because that's what grace does. Jesus Christ is gracious. He sees the good in his people and not the bad. The law is what sees the bad. Grace is what sees the good. He is a gracious redeemer in how he treats his servants. He's a gracious redeemer in how he sees only that which is good and, and, and not that which is bad. He's not only a gracious redeemer, but there's a few other things that I want to share with you. He's a, he's a jealous redeemer. The Bible says in verse number 8, he tells her, go ahead and glean in the fields, but don't glean in any other fields. He, 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 wants, he wants her for himself. He doesn't want her to be out in the other fields where there's, where there's danger. He doesn't want her to be out in the other fields where there's risk, where there's a possibility of her being hurt or hindered. He doesn't want any of those things through her. So he takes this protective uh, jealous uh, mode towards her, attitude towards her, her, if you will. Again, another thing that is jealousy is often seen as a bad thing, but this is not a bad jealousy. Our God is not a jealous God in a selfish, selfish way. Our God is a jealous God in a selfless way. He knows that everything that we that is going to be the best for us, that's going to bring the most joy to us and the most peace within us is going to come from him. So he doesn't want us to go into places that are going to bring us destruction. Does that make sense? His jealousy is for our own good. His jealousy is for our benefit. But listen, don't ever think that our God is not a jealous God. He is a jealous God. When you go and worship other gods and you play with other things that bring you pleasure and satisfaction that are addition to Christ, he's jealous about those things. He wants you for himself. He wants you to be pure and devoted and focused that you find all of your satisfaction and all of your gratification in him. We are his bride not very many of us men in this building would accept our brides going and being a part of other or taking pleasure in other men. It's not inappropriate for him to be a jealous God. And Boaz says, I am a jealous person. You glean in my field, but you glean in my field only. He was, he was jealous for her. And many times in scriptures we see the principle of God's jealousy being laid out for us for always for our good, for his glory. Two other things, uh, three other things just real quick. Um, he, is a, he is a kind and gentle God. He is a kind and gentle God. We see this again with, um, with uh, Boaz's servants. We see it as well with how he treats Ruth we see it throughout the passage. We see it in Matthew 28. The Lord says, um, verse, uh, uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28, uh, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, for I am meek and lowly. I am gentle and kind would be other ways of saying that. 
Our Redeemer is a gentle and kind Redeemer. He's a jealous Redeemer. He's a worthy Redeemer. He's a gracious Redeemer. He sees the good in his people. He encourages the good in his people. He he is blessing and strengthening his people. He is jealous for his people. The last two is that he is the provider for his people. Philippians 4.19, the Bible says, But my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God provides for us in such a way that we have leftovers, right? Isn't that what it's saying here? That Ruth not only was satisfied, and I love the way that he uses that word satisfied. It's not like he just ate a meal and he was full. Is there a difference between being full and satisfied, right? I mean, there are some times that I'm full, and there are other times that I am satisfied. I like the use of the word satisfied here because it's directly connected to John 6, where the Bible says if you eat the bread that comes down from heaven, you will be satisfied. If you drink the water that comes down from heaven, you will be satisfied. In other words, you will never thirst again. You will never hunger again if you partake in Christ. If you partake in him, you will be completely satisfied. That is why in Matthew 13, the scriptures tell us that a man found a treasure that was hidden in the field, and he went and he sold all that he had because that treasure was so much more satisfying. Jesus Christ is more satisfying than anything else in the world. He satisfies his people. You say, Pastor John, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've never been satisfied. We need to, we need to, need to, to reevaluate. Kneel down before him and acknowledge him for who he is. He is satisfying. He's very satisfying. The last thing this morning is he is the protector. We notice in the text that he says to the, to the young men, number, he says to her, first of all, don't glean in other fields because in other fields, remember this is a time of blessing, but amongst the believers there was a, a recognition of the Lord. Amongst the, amongst the unbelievers, we're living in the time of the judges, right? The time of the judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So, so he knew you go and glean over in that field again, you might, get, you might get in trouble physically, whatever might be the case. So he was very protective of Ruth. Don't go in those other fields. Stay in this field. He tells his own men to take care of her, not to touch her, but to take care of her. He tells her to to glean with the men in one context and another it says to glean with the women. Um, there's, some, there's some debate over what was actually said in that context. I think it meant the same thing. I think he was saying stay close to my men for protection and stay with the women who are following behind to glean in the field. But you see that. You'll see that in the text. You'll see actually some confusion over one point he says glean with the women, one point he says glean with the men. But that's ultimately what he is saying. So, so Boaz is, is the protector of Ruth. He sees himself as her provider. He sees himself as her protector. He sees her as his responsibility, if you will. He takes responsibility for her in this moment. She is now underneath his, his 
underneath his uh, care. She has become his responsibility. And the same principle applies to those who come to Christ. We become his responsibility. He becomes our provider. He becomes our protector. He becomes our, our, the one who is responsible for us. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is our shepherd. He becomes all of these things for us. He wants us to be satisfied in him. In the same way that Boaz was seeking for Ruth to find fulfillment in him. That's what we see in chapter number two. He wanted her to see and to know him for who he was so that she could find complete, she could find fullness in him. And we'll see in chapter number three that that, that that ultimately ends up working out in chapter four as well. Christ wants us to be fulfilled in him. He wants us to be identified in him. He wants us to be satisfied in him. So what does he do to do that? What does he do to accomplish this? He, he is constantly showing us his character through the provision of our needs, through protection, through a number of different things that we need to get through each day. And our God is gracious and he's worthy and all of these other things. Just remember this, and I want to to close with a a final few thoughts. Remember this, that God is our protector, but it doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. Okay? God is our provision, but it doesn't mean we're not going to, it doesn't mean that we're going to have everything that we want. God doesn't promise to give us everything that we want. Matter of fact, God doesn't promise that we'll never have a need. What What he promises us is that he will supply our needs. So in order to supply our needs, there has to be a place where we have a need. So there are times in your life that you are going to have needs. There are times in your life that you're going to have desires. There are times in your life that you're going to be in dangerous situations. The Lord wants us to find all of those things from him. So when we have a need, we don't go to solve that need on our own. We find our way to the Lord. When we have a, when we have a fear, which we all do, right? We're living in the 21st century, in 2020 still, so we all have a fear, right? Here's what the Lord doesn't want from us, just in the same way that Ruth couldn't do this. The Lord doesn't want us to find a solution outside of him. That's his jealousy. His jealousy, folks, is this. If you get sick and you go to the doctor before you bow on your knees to, to the one who can heal you, that's, he gets jealous over that. If you don't have any food in your cupboard and you go to get a second job or a third job or whatever before getting on your knees before the Lord and asking him to supply that need, that, he gets jealous over that. He wants you to find full, he wants you to find fulfillment and satisfaction and gratification. He wants you to find everything that you could ever want or desire or need. He wants you to find it in him. So he's drawing you into that. And in the end... What Ruth is meant to see in chapter 2, what we're meant to see is that it's, a, it's safe. It's safe to put yourself in Boaz's world. And listen to me this morning. It's safe. It's safe to put yourself in Jesus' world. It's safe to bow down before him. Acknowledge that you're unworthy. Acknowledge that you're undeserving. Acknowledge that you're a sinner that you need redemption. It's safe to do that. Why? Because Jesus Christ will redeem you. 
Jesus Christ will save you and he will set you free. My call to you this morning, this is the week of Christmas, this is the Sunday before Christmas, and my desire for you is that you would find complete satisfaction in Christ. That you would be so humbled of yourself so emptied of yourself, so vulnerable and recognizing how unworthy you are that you, would, that you would embrace the fullness of somebody else. And that when you embrace that person, whatever comes your way, you will find satisfaction and completeness, not because you're not, not because your wants and desires and everything is fulfilled, but because Christ is those things for you. He is that satisfaction. He is that completeness. He becomes everything for us. And I just encourage you this morning that it's safe to do that. It's safe to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, which is what he calls us to. Let's pray together this morning. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this um, opportunity to walk through it together, help us to learn from this story of the Redeemer, Boaz, but Lord, to be pointed towards the Redeemer, Christ, to know that this is a narrative that's meant to open our hearts and our minds to what Jesus Christ is like. Lord, help us to know that it's safe to be one of yours. Help us to know that it's good to be one of yours. Help us to not be afraid or ashamed to be identified by you, for truly that is our only hope. I pray your blessing upon this time this morning. Bless your people, Lord, and uh, give us a heart for you this week. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.